Acts chapter 21, we've come about to verse 26. Now, you remember Paul leaving Ephesus, making this journey, saying that he needs to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the feast. He's determined to do that. And he's been told all along at different places, and specifically then by a prophet named Agabus, that bonds and afflictions await you. There's trouble there. And of course, Paul clearly said, none of these things moved me. He believed he had the Lord's leading and he needed to get to Jerusalem for the feast. It tells us when he finally gets to Jerusalem, he speaks to James and the elders there and no doubt brings the offering that had been gathered among the Gentiles. And James's concern is that, you know, there's troublemakers here. They've been telling everybody that you teach against the law of Moses. You tell people they don't need to be circumcised. And Paul hadn't done that at all. And we're going to find out the troublemakers tonight as we move into this are Asians. They're from Ephesus. And this was Paul's greatest work. He was there three years, no doubt the greatest number of converts out of Ephesus, of course, spread, you know, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamos. You know, they all kind of spread around Ephesus. They were taking Paul's sweatbands. People were being healed. It was just a, a miraculous time. And then when he met with the elders on the beach of Miletus, they wept together and so forth. And he finally gets to Jerusalem. He meets with James. He gives them the offering and tells them about all the work. The, the Greek phrase is one by one. He tells them all the things that happened among the Gentiles. And then James says, look, there are thousands of Jews that believe. In chapter 21, verse 20, when they heard about Paul's missionary journeys, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how there many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they're all zealous for the law. So their traditions, that was their whole life, vastly different, the church moving amongst the Gentiles. But here in Jerusalem, this was the epicenter of Judaism for 2,000 years. And those that were coming to Christ are still finding their way through. Now, Paul's message was never, you don't, you know, he didn't preach against keeping Sabbath. He didn't preach against circumcising your children. He didn't preach against keeping the feast. What he preached against was to take any of those things to yourself as a form of righteousness. That, that if you believe salvation came through keeping the feast or keeping the law, that that was where the error was. Beside that, it was fine with Paul if you kept the dietary laws, you did any of those things. That was fine. It was tradition. It wasn't salvation. So as he comes to Jerusalem, Jay says, look, there's tens of thousands, thousands now to, that, that believe, but they're all zealous for the law. So he said, and, and what they're saying is you don't care about anything in Judaism anymore. So this is what I'd like you to do. We have four young men and they've taken a vow, a Nazarite vow, and they've been fasting. And vow is singular. Evidently, they're all praying about the same thing. And he said, I want you to, we think it'd be a good idea, go to the temple and 
you go there for a day of purification because Paul, they asked him to pay for the sacrifices. They were expensive that had to be offered at the ending of the vow of these men. He didn't ask Paul to take a vow. He said, you go and you let them know that you're the one who's going to pay for the expenses. And if you do that and you're paying for the sacrifices and so forth, the expenses, then the religious Jews will know you haven't forsaken the traditions of our fathers and so forth. So Paul agrees to do that. Now, this is one of those places where scholars argue, was Paul in the flesh? Was he compromised here? He should have never gone into the temple to offer sacrifices. Um, this was a mistake that he made, and it was obvious because he ends up in in prison there and chained that he shouldn't have done it. It was done in the flesh. Um, I personally don't believe that because there are people on the other side. You know, Paul goes and he ends up in chains, exactly what Agabus said would happen to him. And then Paul ends up going from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he is there in not in chains for the two years, but in, in house prison. And uh, Luke, no doubt, is going back and forth from Jerusalem, writing his gospel, putting together the things for the book of Acts. And then Paul finally appeals to Caesar, and he will go to Rome from there with the shipwreck and everything else that happens. And he'll be acquitted, you know, once there in Rome under Nero, and then scholars think he made it to Spain and different places, but then he's taken back into custody, put in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he's taken from there, and he's beheaded. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. So this begins a long process where Paul touches many untold thousands of lives. Because in prison, he writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians, he writes his, his prison epistles have touched the world and spoken to all of us for so long. And no doubt he would not have seen the fruit of that if he hadn't been placed in prison. And in this scene tonight, when he speaks to these crowds, you know, the, the, the implications of that are unimaginable. So Let's kind of jump in here around verse 26 and 21 and pick up where we were. It, it says, uh, it says, then Paul took the men. This is, you know, they had settled in chapter 15. James was there that they don't lay any burden on the Gentiles. And that's not how salvation comes. But Paul then told us in 1 Corinthians, he said, look, for though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. So unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, didn't say he was, that I might game them that are under the law, to them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became weak, 
that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men. Now, Corinthians was written before this incident. So it's something that was already on the heart of Paul that he understood. So now he takes these four men. Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself, he had to go through washings and certain things because he was going to present himself with the men as the one that was going to pay for all of the expenses involved. That individual had to be purified. So he goes up, enters into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So he goes up to signify, I'm the one who's going to do this. I'm going to take care of the expenses for the offerings and the sacrifices and so forth. And he goes up there, purifies himself, presents himself to the priests. Um, And it says, and when the seven days were almost ended, now that's how much longer was involved in this, And the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, they stirred up all of the people and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and against the law and this place And further, he has brought Greeks, Gentiles, also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Now, by the way, that's not true. Uh, These Jews had persecuted Paul in Ephesus, so he finally moved from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus next door. Uh, They were angry at him the whole time. Now they're accusing him. He hadn't brought Trophimus. Uh, into the temple. He hadn't brought a Gentile in, but through supposition, you know, he supposedly did this. Uh, Through rumor, uh, they're putting now his life at stake. Now look, supposition and rumor still ruin a lot of good men and women. When you hear something about somebody, you need to you know, get your information down. Don't repeat it on the gossip prayer chain or on the, you know, get alone and pray for that person and find out what's going on. Because there are certain stigmas once you put them on the person. It's really hard to get out from under that. So Paul here now is being put in that position, though he was not guilty of it. He takes these four men, he goes in, no doubt, He comes now to the court of men. We're going to see. You come into the temple. There was a baluster all around the temple. And engraved on plaques along that. Now, archaeologists have found one. It's in a mosque in Turkey, in Istanbul. There's another one in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. And all on these baluster, there was a warning that no Gentile was allowed to go past this baluster wall around the outside of the temple. And the inscription said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade that surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his... um, for his ensuing 
death. And it was written in Greek and in Latin, not in Hebrew because there was no you know, prohibition of Hebrews going into the temple. And the, the, the Romans allowed them to do this. So deep was the conviction the Jews had about the Gentiles, and the Romans always had a hard time dealing with the Jews, that Rome allowed them, though they had taken the right away from them to stone someone, kill them, they allowed someone to execute the death sentence on a Gentile who came within that baluster, even if they were a Roman citizen. That, that's how volatile the situation was. So we're in a situation here where Paul has gone in here. Here's the baluster. See it all around the temple? See it there? That short wall there all around the temple it was about three foot high, and it separated the Jews and the Gentiles. It's no doubt what Paul is thinking of when Ephesians, he writes, but now Christ Jesus, who some, you, through Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. When he's writing the Ephesians, he says there's no more separation between Jew and Gentile, and that's what was on this wall, that any Gentile who passed that wall was at the stake of death that would bring death on themselves. And the Romans actually allowed that. So there's the outside baluster where those things were. Paul then no doubt has come in with these four Jewish men. He's gone in this gate here called the Gate Beautiful. If you guys have heard that about the Gate Beautiful, uh, huge gates, uh, Corinthian bronze with gold on parts. And that's where the man, the crippled man, sat in the early in the book of Acts, outside the gate beautiful. Inside, through these gates, you would come into the court of women, it was called. Um, any Jewish person was allowed into the court of women. And there were four rooms in the court there. One of them, if I remember, one of them was contained with salt. So they could throw it out. It would both purify where all the sacrifices were. And salt around there was used in the winter months when there would be ice all around. And Jesus said, when salt has lost its saltness, it's not good for anything to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. And that's what would be there. One of these four corners was wood was stored for the altar that was up here. Um, wood stored for the altar up here. Another one was for those who had made a vow, and these men may have been in there. And the other one was for um, young men that making the bar mitzvah and so forth to come and talk to doctors of the law. So no doubt in one of these four corners, Jesus, when he was brought up by Joseph and Mary, they said they came back and they found him talking to the doctors of the law. That was in one of these corners of the temple. Here, there's a set of steps. You can see those. And then they go up, and there's another court here. It's not as big as this court. It's called the Court of Israel or the Court of Men. So no doubt Paul, with his four guys, had gone up these steps and was somewhere at that wall because the court of the priest is inside of that where the altar is. He had gone up there and they started yelling that he had brought a Gentile within that baluster. 
And it caused this big riot. So they came and they got Paul. And what it says here is the, the, the people laid hands on him. Verse 27 says, after the seven days, he came into there. And when they saw him in the temple, in the court of Israel, no doubt, they stirred up all the people. They laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people of Israel, against the law and against this place. And furthermore than that, he's brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, another of Asia. So they recognize Trophimus. These are not even Jerusalem Jews that start the riot to go after Paul. These are Asian Jews who see him there, who hated him when he was in Ephesus. And it says, they had seen him before with Trophimus, the Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. No reality to it. And look what it says then. It says, all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and they drew him out of the temple forthwith and the doors were shut. So no doubt they drug Paul out here and then out these gates there out into the court of the Gentiles. And it says then those gates were closed when they had drugged Paul out from here out those gates and uh, the whole city's in an uproar. Now realize, this is not Philly. It isn't like everybody's texting each other. This city, usually the population, they say, and as you'll, you'll hear opinions anywhere from 150,000 to 500,000, most of them around 300,000, the normal population of Jerusalem. This is a mandatory feast, Pentecost, so the population would swell to about a million and a half to two millions. Usually at Passover, there was two million. So the crowds are, of course, incredible. And as the people are screaming, dragging Paul out, everybody then in the temple screaming, the whole city hears it. They're within, you know, enough of a peripheral, peripheral area to, to hear what's going on. You go over to Jerusalem today, you can drive around the city, see the old walls, and they were actually tighter at this point in time. So it says they drug him out, they shut the doors, and as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, the whole city. And the Romans hated any kind of uproar like this, any kind of uprising. They dealt with it quickly and severely. So they hear the whole city's in an uproar now, and they drag Paul outside the temple, temple proper, proper into the court of the Gentiles, and they want to kill him. They're beating him. They just want to kill him. This is not their stone. This is just a riot. And it says, when that was heard, verse 31 they went about to kill him, tidings came, and they would come to the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So it says here that tidings came to the chief captain. Up here is the Antonio Fortress. 
the Antonio Fortress was deliberately built adjacent to the temple so the Romans could keep their eyes on everything that was going on there. Because particularly at Passover, but at the feasts, there are people who always wanted to cause an uproar against the Romans. The Messiah they believed was coming was going to overthrow Roman bondage and let every man sit beneath his vine and his fig tree. That's why the disciples, even at the end, are asking Jesus, you know, arguing over who's going to be the greatest, who can sit on his right hand and his left hand. They still didn't get it. So here, word comes, it says, in, to the chief captain who's up here, Okay, in the Antonio Fortress, the chief captain is the Chiliarch or the Tribune. If you watch the movie Ben-Hur, you meet the Tribune there. Chiliarch, a Chiliism is to believe in a thousand years. Chiliarch is a man over a thousand Romans. A Roman legion had 6,000 men in it, and it was comprised of six cohorts. Each cohort had a thousand men and over the cohort was a tribune, chief captain here. It's the same in the Greek, it's the tribune. And the cohort, the thousand men, was usually 760 infantry and 240 cavalry. So this tribune has under him, with a thousand men, he has under him then at least seven centurions. And each one of them are over a hundred men. So this is quite a force, and it would be reinforced at the feast times from Caesarea on the sea, which was the Roman capital in the area. So it says here, this chief captain of the band, this tribune, heard what was going on. It says, who immediately took soldiers, notice, and centurions, plural, so several hundred men, no doubt, and he ran down unto them, and when they saw the tribune, the chief captain, and the soldiers, they left off beating Paul. So as he runs down the stairs here and comes into the temple area, he runs around to the front from the Antonio Fortress around to the front. He gets Paul when they see it's the tribune. You know, it's bad enough it's a centurion. When you see the head honcho come, the chief captain, it's like, whoa. Because this guy's got a thousand soldiers under him. So they kind of all back off. <laughs> they, they leave off beating Paul. Now, we're going to hear in chapter 23, 26, that this man, his name is Claudius Lysias. And he's in secular history. Claudius Lysias was the tribune at this point in time. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. We're going to find out why this is, this is the prophecy Agabus gave. The man who has this is going to be bound with chains. He commanded him to be bound with two chains that would be hand and foot and demanded who he was. Who is this guy? What's this riot? What's going on? What has he done? And some cried one thing and some another. Notice this now. Among the multitude, the crowd has swelled. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle, the fortress, the Antonio Fortress. And when he came upon the stairs... So it was 
that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. The soldiers actually had to lift him up and hold him off the ground. They couldn't get around him and let him walk because the crowd is out of control because of the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him, away with him, which doesn't mean send him on vacation. Away with him is kill him, kill him. And very interestingly, he is in the same place, the Antonio Fortress, John nineteen fifteen, Luke 18, verse 23, 18, where Jesus was in the same fortress and the same cry, away with him, away with him. You know, Paul will write to the Philippians from jail that I might know him. Count everything else is done. That I might know him, the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I may be made conformable unto his death. You know, and here Paul stands in the same place where his Savior stood. And the same crowd is screaming away with him, away with him over 20 years before this. <clears throat> and you wonder what's in Paul's heart as he looks all of this. It was 27 years earlier. The, the, other, the crowd was screaming away with him over Jesus. And as Paul was to be led into the fortress, he said unto the tribune, the chief captain, May I, now notice, he's talking to the head guy, so he's very polite. May I speak unto thee? It's all right, can I talk with you for a minute? Who said, his response was, canst thou speak Greek? He, he He can't believe it because he said, art thou not that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar and led out into the wilderness 4,000 men who were murderers. So Josephus writes about this. It was a few years before this, and no doubt this tribune was there. Uh, this Egyptian arises claiming to be a Messiah, and he leads out 4,000, it says murderers here, Sakari, the dagger men, the, the, the word uh, Sikari, Sika, is the dagger. And the, the zealots in Jerusalem, they were even there in Jesus' days. Uh, one of his disciples, the apostles, is called Simon the Zealot. They would carry this short dagger about this long, the blade about this long, very sharp, carried inside the robe. And if they were in a crowd, sometimes a Roman soldier, they knew where to slip that blade between his armor. They would just stick him and disappear into the crowd. Um, they got to Annas's son named Jonathan because he was doing something and one of the daggermen got him in a crowd and killed him. So this Egyptian had arisen and he, somehow he, 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 he kind of rounds up all of these zealots, these daggermen, 4,000 of them, and they're going to all go into Jerusalem together and overthrow Rome. Easier said than done. If you've studied the Roman army, some of our special forces and Navy SEALs today still implement some of their disciplines. You did not mess with Romans. This was a genuine force. They say 2,000 Romans could defeat 10,000 of any other army in the world. Um, 
So the, this tribune had put them to flight and put them to death. And he thinks now this is all starting up. He thinks Paul is this Egyptian. And now, but when that's why he put him in the chains, hand and foot, because that's who he thought he was. But then Paul says to him, can I speak can I speak with you? May I? And Paul's asking his, this question in Greek. And it says, the centurion said, you can speak Greek. Because you have to understand, a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem, they had snippets of Greek they could speak and understand because of business. But Paul speaks to him in the most excellent you know, type of Greek he has heard as a Roman. He understands right away the way he speaks the language. He says, are you, a, you know, you're, you're, you can speak Greek. I thought you were this, you know, this guy who led this. I thought you were this Egyptian, you know, that started this uproar. In verse 39, Paul said, I'm a man, I'm a Jew. What do you mean am I Egyptian? I'm a Jew. There was always hostility between the Jews and the Egyptians. Paul said, I'm a man, which I'm a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, and a citizen of no mean city. Doesn't mean mean like Philadelphia. It mean, it's like small, mean, insignificant. So Paul says, an Egyptian, he said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, which was the capital of the province, and a Roman bastion. And if you lived in Tarsus and had a citizenship in Tarsus, you were a Roman citizen. So Paul says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm of Tarsus, the city of Cilicia, and I'm a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beseech, I beg you, allow me to speak unto the people. So he asked the, the, the tribune now to give him that permission. Very interesting. Somebody gave me this big hunkin' book uh, a while ago, and it's a, a historian did it, and it's all the records from the Roman legions, the history of Rome, things I never knew the Romans did, and I'm never going to read the whole book. But the interesting thing is in the table of contents, it has, it's, it has the record from the Tribune of the uproar in Jerusalem. It has the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Roman records. It has what happened at Masada in there. And uh, I just grabbed, can I indulge you here? This is Roman history. It says, one late summer day, and it gives you the, the number of the entry and the legionnaires and so forth. Um, on a late summer day, 58 AD, the guard cohort of the third Galacta legion stationed at Jerusalem's Antonio Fortress was unexpectedly called to arms. That afternoon, towards the end of the hour of prayer at the Jewish temple up on the Temple Mount, a riot had erupted and all Jerusalem was in an uproar. A Jewish man from Cilicia had been assaulted in the temple, then thrown out. The temple attendants pushed its massive bronze doors shut. The Cilician was being beaten by the crowd of angry Jews that grew larger by the minute. The third Galactics camp prefect, prefect at the Antonio, Claudius Lysias, led forth soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When the troops arrived on the scene, the crowd drew back 
a camp prefect, Lysias, ordered the battered victim, a bald, bearded, middle-aged man, to be bound hand and foot with two chains and then demanded to know from the crowd who this fellow was and what he had done. Says Lysias was answered by a concapony of voices, all saying something different, so he ordered his men to carry the prisoner back to Antonio. With the crowd following them, calling for the man's death, he was carried to the Antonio's gate. At the top of 60 steps that led to the gate, the prisoner, speaking Greek, asked Lysias if he might talk to him. Lysias, who, like many Romans throughout the East, was of Greek extraction, was surprised that the Jews spoke Greek. He then thought that he recognized the fellow as an Egyptian who four years before had led 4,000 followers against Jerusalem only to have his band bloodily bloodily dispersed by the Roman garrison. That's what Roman garrisons did. But the man said that he was from a city of Tarsus, Cilicia, then asked permission to speak to the crowd. From the Antonio steps, the Jew addressed the mob, which fell silent as speaking in their native tongue. He said that he was Saul of Tarsus, a Cilician Jew who had studied at Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Then I'll save the rest for next week when we get there. But the idea is this is from Roman records telling us about our study, you know, this evening from this, the Roman legion's point of view of what took place. So we're looking at something as real as the war in Ukraine today. We're looking something as real as the riots in our streets and the things go on. We're looking at something, you know, as corrupt as the things that go on all around us today. Um, This is recorded in history, this whole scene. So he asked if he might speak to the people. Now, he's shocked with his ability to speak Greek. So it says, and when he had given him license... Paul stood on the stairs and he beckoned with his hand unto the people. No doubt the Holy Spirit extremely present. And when there was made a great silence, you don't take people who are rioting one minute and you're the guy they want to kill and you quiet them down in one minute. This is the Holy Spirit. There was great silence. He spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. Now, he speaks in the Hebrew tongue. This is not Old Testament Hebrew that the scholars understood. This would be the Aramaic that was spoken in the day that everybody in the temple would understand. There was a finer Hebrew that the that the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, the scribes would understand, but not all the population would. So he speaks to them to them in this. It's called Hebraic dialectos. It's a dialect of Hebrew, which was Aramaic. It was, it was from Aramea, and it became a language through many of the countries there, Syria, Israel, so forth. In fact, if you study Hebrew today, the Hebrew characters, their letters, are Aramean letters. The ancient Hebrew was another thing. There's only about seven people in the world that can read that today. Um, So this would have been Aramaic that he was speaking to them, which 
Lysias wouldn't have understood, Claudius Lysias. And Paul says to them then, he says, men, brethren, and fathers. Now understand, he, he butters them up at first, brethren, fathers. He gives them his credentials, who he is. His, his credentials under Gamaliel, you know, being led of the Sanhedrin, persecuting Christians. He lays it all out and they're standing silently listening to him. And then he gets around to his conversion, the Lord appearing to him on the road to Damascus. But understand this. I've been on the Temple Mount at Ramadan. The Temple Mount today, when there were 60,000 Muslims on the Temple Mount. It's huge, the Temple Mount. So we don't know. There's a big crowd that's been drawn together. It's, it's a mandatory feast. There could have been easily 60 to 100,000 Jews there. This is the biggest audience Paul has ever preached to. He's already written Romans saying, I wish I could be accursed from my own countrymen. I would give up my own life to see my own people come to Christ. And all of a sudden, here he is. He, he said, you know, bonds and afflictions wait me, but I'm not, I can't be moved from this. None of these things move because the Holy Spirit is telling me to get to Jerusalem. So now here he is. If you can imagine, you know, 2,000 people or so in here on Sunday when it's jammed. Imagine 50 times that. The crowd. And he's getting to share Christ with Jerusalem. There are already thousands of believers, but, but heaven will tell what impact Paul has before he starts the riot here. When he speaks to these thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews that have all now gone quiet. And they're hearing them. No doubt the Holy Spirit has settled them. But they're hearing Paul not speaking them in Greek now, which would have been an offense, no doubt. But in Aramaic, their religious language, their, their native tongue. Charles Spurgeon said, we must speak so that people can understand us if we want their attention. You know, and here Paul speaks in their language and they're all kind of, Settle down. They're all listening. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, my apologia, which I make now unto you. Now, Claudius is listening, but he doesn't know what he's saying. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue, now they realize he's not a Gentile, whatever this is about, you know, he, he, they, they hear his language speaking in Aramaic, this Hebraic dialectos, a dialect of Hebrew. He spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them. They kept the more silent, and he said to them, now listen to his credentials. He says, I am, and it's emphatic there, I, for myself. You know, they're listening. I'm a Jew, he says. I, I'm, I for myself, truly, verily a man, which I'm a Jew. Secondly, he says, I was born in Tarsus. So he's drawing in the Hellenist. He's drawing in the religious Jews. I was born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, 
These are his credentials, a Jew from Tarsus. Secondly, I was brought up in this city. And the word brought up there means to nurture up. It's speaking about a child and then raising up. We're not, we don't have the exact information. Was Paul eight years old, 12 years old when he came to Jerusalem? Did his family move to Jerusalem because they were religious Jews to see him grow up there? He's saying, yeah, I was born in Tarsus, but I was schooled in this city. When we get to the 23rd chapter, we're going to find out his nephew comes his sister's son, his sister lives in Jerusalem to warn him about the, the oath the Sadducees have taken to kill him. So he has family, no doubt, here in the city. He says, I was raised in this city. He, he said, born in Tarsus, but I was brought up in Jerusalem. Then he says this, I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. The, the great teacher of Israel, the great grandson of Hillel, and uh, the most respected teacher uh, in, in Israel at this point, uh, you know, if he's, if he's still alive at this point, he says, but everybody knew who he was. I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, and they would sit on the floor at the feet. So he, they understand right away he's talking about I was in his school. I was mentored by him, and I was taught by Gamaliel according to the perfect manner, exact manner of the law. When they hear he's with Gamaliel, they know he's a Pharisee, that he was raised in Jerusalem. He said, in the school of Gamaliel, and I learned the law perfectly, he says. There's no question um, in this situation. <clears throat> I learned the law He's saying, of the fathers, the mature leaders, the Sanhedrin, those that were there. And I was zealous toward God. And look, he compliments them, as ye all are this day. So they're zealous. They want to kill him. This guy's brought a, you know, a Gentile into the temple. So he's saying, I was zealous. I understand your zeal. I was, I was zealous in the same way as you all are this day. And I persecuted this way. I persecuted Christians, and he tells us here, unto death. So we know as you put together the picture of Paul, he held men and women off to prison. He destroyed families. He made people blaspheme the name of Jesus at the point of the sword. And it says he persecuted them unto death. And again, Paul was the Antichrist of the book of Acts. He was the guy nobody could ever expect ever to get saved. And now he's saying this to them and he's realizing some of the leaders in Jerusalem are aged, they're older, and they know him. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He stood there when Stephen was stoned and cast his vote. They know him. And they know that he persecuted Christians. They know that he got letters from the Sanhedrin to go to Damascus and bring back people as prisoners. The, he has a reputation. And as he starts speaking, they realize who he is. So he says, I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest doth bear me witness. So 
Zanus or Caiaphas still alive? Certainly they weren't the high priest at this point in time. But he says also, but the high priest would have known from the records. He says, the high priest doth bear me witness. He knows who I am. And all the estate of the elders, the Sanhedrin, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem to be punished. Uh, Paul says, these are my credentials. You people know who I am. He's speaking in their language. I'm a Jew. I was you know, born in Tarsus, but I was raised in Jerusalem. This is where I grew up. And in the school of Gamaliel. And he said, and I'm zealous the same way you were zealous. I see that you are. And he said, I persecuted. I learned the law perfectly, and I was zealous for it, and I persecuted these Christians, which they early considered just another sect of Judaism. They called it the way. He said, I persecuted them to death, he said. I, I killed them like you were trying to kill me. I hailed men and women to prison. I got letters from the Sanhedrin, the high priest. They can bear me witness right here, standing here. There's no secret they knew about my life. And I went and got official letters from them to go to Damascus to bring back people as prisoners. You know, that's why Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And he had already written this, remember. He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, and he wrote this not long before this scene, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James and all of the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not fit, I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says, I shouldn't even be called an apostle. I was, and he's telling them here in this scene, I persecuted this way. I persecuted the church of God. And he says, and it came to pass now that I made my journey and was come nigh to Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Now look, I, I kind of read through this and I think what's happening in his dendrites as he's re, re, you know, rehearsing this scene. How many times at night had he seen it? A thousand times. This is a man who's hating the church, hating Christians. He's so zealous he can't stand them. You know, when Stephen was preaching, it was eating him alive. He couldn't understand how Stephen got all this wisdom because he steals Stephen's sermons. And he opened up this one the way Stephen did in Acts 7. And how many times then, you know, he's on his way to Damascus and, and this bright light and he falls down and the voice says to him, 
Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, he was persecuting the church. You and I are the body of Christ. We're his bride. And when someone's persecuting Christians or persecuting the church, it's because they're persecuting Jesus. Why persecutest thou me? And he says, who are you, Lord? There's no doubt right away. Who, some, whoever knocked him down is divine. And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And what he remembers at that moment the soldiers at the tomb, we're told, had come to the priests and told them what had happened at the tomb. And the priest gave them a large amount of money and said, what you're going to tell people is his disciples came by night and stole his dead body. And if you get in trouble, you know, with Pilate, you'll come to us, the governor, and we'll handle that for you. And it says this as, as Matthew wrote, this was even believed among the Jews until this day. So Paul is one of those Jews who believed that the body of Christ was stolen. He didn't believe Jesus was alive. He couldn't understand these Christians doing this. And then the, the, the incredible experience he had on the road to Damascus is he encounters the living Christ. Jesus is alive. He's in front of me. Just knock me off my horse. He's talking to me. So that's what he's rehearsing. And I think as he rehearses this, again, how alive is his memory? How many times did he go to bed at night or when he was shipwrecked or when he was beaten, when he was stoned? You know, how many times in all of that did he close his eyes all sore and all beaten and hear that voice again and see that light again? And here, I'm, so I'm sending you to the Gentiles for my glory. And these are the things you're going to suffer. You know, that experience so real to him through his life. Then another time he's caught up to the third heaven. He says, I see things, saw things there that were unspeakable. Probably when he was stoned there at Lystra. And we're going to hear in this riot, finally, Jesus is going to appear to him and say, Paul, you did good today. That was the last thing he was thinking because he started a riot and he was hoping him that going there, he would, would open the door. He has no idea the door that was open to the world there. And it was the Lord's will for him to be there. And Jesus said, you did good, Paul. I'm not done with you. I'm going to send you to Rome. You're going to do, you know, do one of these there too. And, you know, you, you look at it and think this Jesus that had revealed himself to him the slaughterer of the church, the blasphemer, making men and women blaspheme the name of Christ with, at the point of the sword, hailing them to prison, persecuting them to death, blood on his hands. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. What would you have me to do, Lord? He remembers that flash of light that took away his vision. And it says those that were with him didn't see the light, but they heard the sound. They heard the voice, the sound of the, but they didn't hear the, the dialect. The, they didn't hear the words. They didn't hear exactly what was said. So he rehearses this scene now. And I think, what was it like? You're going to get to soon. Pay attention tonight, please, because soon you're going to get to sit with Paul and say, what was that like? What was that like? 
says, it came to pass as I made my journey and I was come nigh to Damascus. He remembers coming up to the gates of the city. And he remembers this. It was about noon. Because in one of his other, he gives this testimony several times. He's going to say, the light outshone the noonday sun. You know, if you've been in the Middle East, I've been there many times. When that sun is at its meridian in the Middle East, it is bright. It turns the sky, of course, you know, crystal blue. It's, it's just amazing. And he said, the light that shone around me made that look like nothing. And he says, it was about noon, he says, and suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell to the ground, I guess. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul. And he's going to tell us later it was in the Hebrew tongue. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said unto me, now King James says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. The Greek says, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. And it's the only place he uses that title of himself. Imagine him hearing that. What a shock. He, he didn't know, you know, am I going to see the Shekinah? You know, is, is this, uh, you know, the angel of the Lord? And what he hears is, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. And he knows whoever standing in that light ain't lying. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with, with me uh, saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they didn't hear the voice. They, they heard a noise, but they didn't hear the words. They couldn't understand it was something being said of him that spake with me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise, go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee, of all things which are appointed for thee to do, to be doing, present tense. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand, <laughs> he's going to go in Damascus, but much differently than he expected to go into Damascus, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. We'll have to back up if the Lord tarries and pick up there next week. And there's more from the Roman records of, uh, of what takes place there. So uh, interesting to look at this scene. I think rumors, suppositions can cause all kinds of people. You know, if you hear something, don't just repeat it immediately. You hear gossip, don't just repeat that. Find out what the story is. Find out what's going Because none of this was true about him. They had no idea who was there in their midst. You know, and they're stirred up. He cared more about their lives than they cared about their lives. God has order. The powers that be are ordained of God. Claudius Lysias steps in. He's got a thousand. He's a tribune, men under him. He, he takes control of the whole situation, saves Paul's life. 
and provides a stage for him to speak to a hundred thousand, who knows how many. This has to be the most nervous Paul the Apostle has ever been. He's got the biggest audience he's ever had of his own countrymen, everything he dreamed of. They all go silent. He knows the Lord is present. And he says, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm one of you. Brethren, I'm one of you and of the fathers. I'm a Jew. Truly, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised here in Jerusalem. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he says. And he said, I learned from him the law perfectly. And I was zealous for that law. As you're zealous today, that's why you're doing what you're doing. I was zealous as well. And I persecuted this way unto death. I hated it. It infuriated me. I thought that they were imposters. I thought they were trying to destroy our faith, Judaism. But on the way to Damascus, that story changed. And I think how this man must have relived that. You know, each one of us kind of in our lives, I'm sure there are certain times I have maybe three, uh, you know, where there's an Ebenezer built in our lives. And the Lord's saying, I've been faithful heretofore up to this point. Do you think it's going to change now? And he wants to be, obviously, as alive to us as he was to Paul. These different callings on our lives, undoubtedly. But here we have these Roman historians telling us about this scene, our Jesus, who was active in government 2,000 years ago, is active in government today. There isn't anything happening on this ball of dirt that he didn't foresee and foreknow. And the chess players on the board right now are being arranged for the final scenes. And all the chess players are on the board. And the same Jesus is at work right now, tonight. And the prophetic sands are running through the hourglass. They're almost done. And there's a prophetic tension between tonight and the future that no generation of the church has ever known. Paul said to the Romans, now is our salvation closer than we first believed. Are you kidding me? If it was close to them, how close is it to us? Israel back in the land, all the pieces are there. How does that pan out in my life? You know, I look at Paul and I think, just nothing held him back. That The grace that was extended to him, the murder of the church, the love that overwhelmed him, the forgiveness was there. It drove him like an engine for the rest of his life. You know, John, the apostle, uses the word grace seven times. But to get those seven times, you have to read the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. You put all of his writing together, coincidence, John uses the word grace seven times. Peter uses the word grace twice. 
And he talks about the very colored grace of God because he needed purples and yellows and reds. Peter was so crazy. He needed all different shades of grace in his life. But Paul is the one who uses the word grace over 120 times. God's grace. And he said, if I can get in, anybody can get in. God has lifted up my life and used me as a trophy on his mantelpiece. Paul says, so that when you see me in his grace and forgiveness, you have no excuse not to come. There may be people here tonight that have done terrible things. Maybe nobody knows about them. He knows. David said, before thee and thee only have I sinned, done this great evil in thy sight. You might be caught up in something you know you shouldn't be caught up in. Might be pornography, alcohol, substance. Who knows in the world we're in today? Murder, abortion, theft, self-righteousness. But the point is, you haven't done anything compared to what this man who becomes the apostle of God's grace has done. You haven't done anything like him. And for him to be embraced by Christ and to be used in his day when there were no First Amendment rights, no Second Amendment rights, under the heel of Rome, when God, in the fullness of time when God had sent his son, there isn't any excuse that you and I have not to come not to give him our lives with whatever imperfections we have, whatever we're struggling with today, you know, whatever our resume is, it doesn't match Paul's resume. And God drew him into his arms, changed his life, set the man on fire, sustained him, sent him forth as the apostle of grace. And tonight... How many of us, Galatians, Romans, the things that he wrote, his prison epistles have changed our lives and spoken to us so clearly. I'm going to stand, we'll stand, we'll pray of the musicians, Brian will come. But I want you to do this. If you're here tonight and you have felt at a distance, you think you've done something that God can't deal with or he's, that you've surprised him, that hasn't happened He knows the end from the beginning. Or that he's just done with you. The devil's condemning you. As we sing this last song, I'd encourage you in your heart, if you feel at a distance, to just say, Lord, make this real to me. Jesus, your love, your grace. If you could take this man, Saul of Tarsus, who slaughtered the church, destroyed Christian families, put them in prison, made them blaspheme your name. If you could take that life, and set it aside for your purposes and make him a messenger of your love and your grace. Lord, please draw me back. Draw me close. Let that happen in my life. Jesus said the one whom he forgives the most ends up to be the one who loves him the most. And there's a work that can happen in our lives that can't happen through a psychologist or a counselor or a pastor or any human endeavor. There's a work that can happen in our lives that will only happen through that light, through the Holy Spirit, through the reality of his presence. It's life-changing.
Amen. Let me pray that we'll sing this song. I encourage you just as we worship to say, Lord, here I am. Have me. Here I am, Lord. I'm stubborn. I'm on the wrong track. Have me, Lord Jesus. Lord, I know you've overheard. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, of gathering. We look at Ukraine. We look around the world. We look at the Christians persecuted in the Muslim world. We think of uh, the Christians persecuted in South America and India and so many different places. We think of those screaming when there's prayer on a football field at the end of a game. It's all around us, Lord. None of it surprises you. Lord, don't let the undertow take us down, Lord. Sometimes inwardly, Lord, we can allow ourselves to just begin to allow compromise, Lord. We think no one sees, no one knows, but Lord, you do. And we pray, Lord, with David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let it happen. Lord, that's our prayer. Let it. We can't do it, Lord. Let it happen by your divine power and your grace, Lord. Hear our hearts as we worship, Lord, not just our mouths. We pray in your name. Amen.